Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This is Erica Sanderson, and you're listening to The Wicked Library. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. What triggers fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation are under your control. Welcome to the Wicked Library's Pride Month episode. I'm Davis Walton, the creator of the Viridian Wild and the sound designer of Nightlight. My first published short story, Sea Nettles, was featured this past March on the Wicked Library, and most recently, my sound design was featured on the new miniseries from Victoria's Lift. It's an incredible honor to be your host for this episode featuring phenomenal queer writers. It's fantastic to be a part of the momentum to support and showcase the works of queer people in horror. Queer history and the horror genre walk hand-in-hand as, for centuries and now, queer people have been seen as monsters in the closet disrupting traditional values. As society's understanding and acceptance of queer people changed over time, so did the portrayal of queer and queer-coded characters in the horror genre. We went from being subjects, like in Bride of Frankenstein, Picture of Dorian Gray, and Cat People, to the 80s, where conservative morals clashed against sexual freedom and queer desires as shown in films like Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, Fright Night, The Lost Boys, Hellraiser, and Hello Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, to today, where queer characters are front and center in the spotlight in television shows like Penny Dreadful, Haunting of Hill House, Haunting of Bly Manor, and American Horror Story, and even to memes like our queer icon, The Babadook. We celebrate the progress and acceptance that has allowed queer creators to share and publish their terrifying creations. However, we still have a long way to go and the fight for rights, especially trans rights, is far from over. It does not stop until queer people everywhere feel safe and are allowed to live freely as themselves. Pride Month is the perfect time to continue supporting the queer community around you, to learn about queer history, and to consume the works of queer creators. Today's episode features eight queer writers. Also, in almost every story, we've matched a queer voice to the tale to maximize representation. 
In addition, The Wicked Library's resident artist and executive producer Jeanette Andromeda recently came out as bisexual and celebrates her announcement in this episode's cover art. And our lead editor and executive producer Scarlett R. Algie is asexual. Simply, The Wicked Library would not be possible without the hard work and creative efforts of members of the LGBTQ community. If you enjoyed today's stories, please explore more of our work by visiting our bio pages on thewickedlibrary.com where you can find other ways to support us. All stories in today's episode are scored by our resident composer, Nico Vetese. And now, without further ado, let's get wicked. We begin with an alien encounter in A Little Too Late for Little Green Men by Haley Piper, told by Skylar McElwee. An untraveled back road, a clear night sky, and a driver who might be missed but wouldn't be looked for. At least not by the authorities. A recipe for UFO encounters if Demeter had ever heard one. But aliens seemed too coincidental tonight, right? Attend a gathering for UFO aficionados and then see the real thing? Outrageous. Unacceptable. Of course, was attend the right word to use when she and her friends were never invited? Crash might be more accurate, and with Roswell's severity. Certainly, the invited attendees had not been happy to see Demeter and her fellow glitter and rainbow wanderers flit in from the parking lot. She had seen flyers for UFO Fest and thought it would be their natural habitat. Outdoors, nighttime, summer drinking while flashing glow sticks topped with the smiling, bug-eyed heads of little green men? What could be gayer than that? Who wouldn't welcome a few ladies from the local lesbian bar? Losers and bastards. That's who. UFO Fest seemed to cater especially to losers and bastards. This is a family event, said a stiff man with slicked back hair whose glasses matched the glow stick's big buggy eyes. He looked like the type to head a homeowner's association. We're a family, Demeter had said, tossing her dark curls. A long time had passed since anyone went so far out of their way to tell her she didn't belong. Grade school was worse and the government made paperwork and doctors a living hell. But she had been lucky in her adult social life. She didn't stand up to HOA Slick beyond flashing a glitter-coated middle finger on her way out. The attendees' scowling faces and clenched fists told her she didn't want to be the last one leaving the parking lot tonight. Her friends would retreat soon, too. But she chose to be the first on the dark road heading from the remote woods to the busy city. She had given up UFO Fest for a genuine UFO. It looked torn, from an old comic book or B-movie, maybe Earth versus the Flying Saucers, or Godzilla versus Monster Zero. A UFO built in the realms of paranoia, paranormal, and pulp fiction. Flat, round, spinning like a tire broken loose from its car. Its underside glowed brighter than any Martian heat ray the UFO Fest attendees might have expected. The disc's path followed the road ahead, arcing around the black trees in time with Demeter's car. Like its occupants were watching her. But they wouldn't take her, right? Aliens only abducted people no one would believe. It's an unwritten, yet highly enforced rule between dark back roads and flying saucers. She didn't qualify. Her friends loved her. They would believe her. And whoever heard of trans girls being abducted by aliens from outer space? It just wasn't done. Aliens should be plucking for more populous demographics. 
If it happened on the regular, nobody at the lesbian bar talked about it. Maybe all her friends had journeyed on magic flying saucer rides and never told her. Didn't want her to get jealous or scared. Or both. What she had to be seeing, participating in, was an amateur hour abduction, partial to that little-known foolish crevice of night between the witching hour and sunrise. These particular aliens didn't know what they were doing, E.T. the unprofessional. If they couldn't land the basics of abductee unbelievability in population demographics, how much worse could they screw up their tractor beams, organ probes, and reintroduction of a human specimen to their natural habitats? They might mash her against the saucer's underside, scramble her intestines, and then drop her in some wrong place, or hell, some wrong time. Light poured from the saucer's underside and swallowed her car, still in motion. Slowing, stopping, or skidding off the road seemed pointless. A civilization that could leave its planet and cross the stars to this system, this world, and as many times as paranormal investigators shouted and Pentagon officials whispered about, would not be deterred by changes in Demeter's speed or direction. She was only a driver in the night. Every inch of skin tingled as her car unfolded around her like a blossoming flower, offering its nectar to a silvery bumblebee from outer space. She floated into the air, held in place yet ascending. If anyone watched from the woods, they had to be seeing exactly the image one would expect on a book of alien encounters. The kind she'd found stuffed in the back of her elementary school library when she was a kid. No one under age 10 should have read those chapters detailing real encounters per the book's title, each more terrifying than the last, and yet wondrous, too. After reading at night as a kid, she would look out her window, back when seeing the stars in the sky wasn't so rare, and both shudder at the thought of Hopkinsville gremlins breaking through her window screen, and also long for a light in the sky to take her away from this terrible world. They would zorp her onto their flying saucer, greet with gray bodies and black eyes, and say, Hello, Demeter and welcome to the galactic frontier. It's time for adventure. It's time to love your life. In some way, she had thought she belonged out in the stars, herself an alien lost on Earth and awaiting her people to come get her before she'd learned why her world didn't fit right. Life was better now. Aside from floating 30 feet in the air toward a swirling saucer in the sky, she couldn't get over the shape, nearing by the moment so cliché would the engineers and spacefarers inside mirror the bug-eyed green men, or the standard-issue gray aliens of yore? Predictable aliens, as if HOA Slick from UFO Fest had radioed up for them to fetch her. If they followed childhood Demeter's expectations, they would be gray, and the only green one would be HOA Slick's eyes, filled with envy were he to know Demeter, this other, had been folded into alien light. None of the stuck-up attendees to UFO Fest would ever truly experience this moment. The reality would send them screaming. They only thought they wanted this, but really, they were the type to see someone different and expect the worst. But beyond expectation, the reality had found her instead. No matter how harshly she criticized the alien's performance, they were taking her. Why now? Why not when she was little? before she'd known she was a girl and not an alien. Why hadn't they explained themselves and spared her the confusion back then? 
a little pep talk about which flying saucers turned cows inside out, versus which one planted chips versus which one mind-controlled giant monsters to ravage Japan. These were the topics little alien-obsessed trans kids needed to know. The light folded her into a cold metal room. The walls were sleek and silvery, the machines seemed enigmatic. By shape and size, she should have been able to guess what each device was for, but no. They seemed to warp around themselves as Mobius strips of wire in reflective darkness. To understand them would flip the script. Alien tech was supposed to be outside her comprehension. That was another rule, right? Everything about these visitors came glued to expectation. A by-the-numbers abduction, if there ever was one, as if plucked from her preteen imagination, and that mattered. There was more to it than that, right? She had to unpack the paranoia and the paranormal from the pulp. They had taken her not because this was an amateur hour abduction, but because they wanted her, specifically, only years too late for her to want them to. Why now? She ran the evening through her head as alien limbs tap-tapped through the nearby corridors, getting closer. She hadn't felt she belonged at UFO Fest. HOA Slick had seen to that. She had been called all sorts of slurs in recent years, and given all manner of runaround and dirty looks and trouble in the government and doctor's offices, but no real threat of violence since the high school locker room until tonight. All of her friends had felt unwelcome, unwanted, threatened. But not all her friends used to crave alien saviors. Almost like these aliens had picked up on the same childhood to adolescent desperation, repeated now, with their solution coming far too late. She liked her life today, warts and all. The aliens appeared now with inconvenience, and yet as convenient a form as could be. Like they weren't real. She crowned her sneaker's heel into the floor, solid, and yet even the surface hummed with unearthly buzzing, some code to say, don't you believe in me? The truth is right here. The room was sterile, machines aside. Not one inch bore another world's culture. No decorations, no sense of a lived-in place, as if the alien's entire existence focused on what they might want with the humans scurrying across the island Earth as if humans had come up with them from old comic books and B-movies and failed to fill in the details, while some other mind had copied this threadbare approach to the letter. No creativity. Only expectation made manifest. It was too just right to be right in the slightest. Sleek walls blossomed open like Demeter's car and let the expected gray aliens crawl insect-limbed along the walls and floors, their black eyes shined, emotionless and curious. Demeter guessed if her younger self had expected them to be green, they would be green. They would ask no human-derived questions on why some features didn't match the usual population, no nonsense assigning genders to clothes and colors, and nothing but a Hello, Demeter, and welcome. They would be whatever she wanted. This moment should have been a dream come true, but she couldn't be terrified or awed and she couldn't believe. Some cosmic quirk had picked up on HOA Slick's intent and handed Demeter what she wanted, but its understanding ran shallow. This was presentation, nothing more. The Greys gave exactly the introduction she'd wanted. It hummed in her mind. They were telepaths, of course. Hello, Demeter. And so on. 
When they finished, she asked, What are you really? A crack spread down the glass surface of expectation. Silvery walls shuddered into static fuzz, as if the flying saucer were being lost in an old TV channel's flagging signal. The underside to this saucer was not its tractor beam, but a strange cosmic muscle flexing inside reality's skin. Static vanished, and the gray aliens and their silver walls stood solid again. The muscle below wanted Demeter to accept this presentation. This present. The aliens were gifts. Had this cosmic wish-granter visited her at 5, 8, 10, especially 15, maybe even 17, she would have let it help her. Everything had come together as she dreamed after all. But not when she dreamed it. I appreciate this, she said. Whatever it is, really, thank you. But I like my life now. And my family and friends. It really did get better. Static fuzz swallowed the ship again, a harsher crack running through the glass expectation. Demeter saw through the fissure now, beneath reality's skin, down to the bizarre muscle and its desires. Her rejection cut a wound here and the muscle squeezed around her. She could be morphed to meet expectation, too. Anything could. The muscle was desperate now. It had come all this way, maybe not across space, but across thoughts or concepts, here to turn her old expectation into reality. If she didn't take it, it could change her, maybe into another gray, or a mess beneath the saucer. Or child her, all future memories forgotten the Demeter with a different name who would accept the gift. The muscle clenched tight and buried her in its snow. Static hissed in her ears. Beneath the skin, there were depths to muscle's pain and need. It had been rejected before. It once had expectations too, and sometimes they came true in the worst ways. An outsider to reality. Unbelonging. Demeter had known this feeling often as a kid. And again tonight. I know what to do, she said through the static hush. I know who you can give. The cosmic muscle eased from her skin. It was listening. Little time had passed when the saucer's light folded Demeter back to the ground. Her personal cassette tape rewinding her to the parking lot she'd so quickly ditched. Her friends were gone now. Likely her phone sat thrumming in her car elsewhere filled with worried texts. Her journey back to it would be a long walk, but not as far a distance as what awaited UFO Fest's attendees. None seemed to notice her floating into the lot. HOA Slick and his crowd gazed up the nearby black trees and spotted the silver swirling disk as its tractor beam washed over them. The light glared in HOA Slick's glasses. These were professional aliens, in their own made-up way after all. The cosmic muscle had seen to it. Amateur hour aliens couldn't float 50-plus people into the sky at once without incident. Some attendees trembled, others screamed. Most gaped into the light, their thoughts taken away by terror and awe. Their ascension flashed by in moments, and yes, it did look like that cover of the library book, Real Encounters. And then the UFO blinked away and became another twinkling star. Demeter had expected benevolent and welcoming aliens when she was a kid, despite the fear in the library book's chapters. 
and this strange muscle that rippled beneath reality's skin had obliged her. The UFO Fest attendees, laced in paranoia, paranormal, and pulp fiction, selecting themselves and fearing the other, the different, the Demeter. They would bring a varied host of expectations, each unique to the attendee, wholly different from Demeter's old wishes. Greys of a different flavor, little green men with Martian heat rays, monsters from outer space, and each would get exactly what was coming to them. Up next, we explore a dangerous internet game in Eleven by Brianna Morgan, told by Addison Peacock. Kayla opened her car door to the reek of gas fumes and the sounds of people arguing. For a moment, she hesitated right outside the car. As far as she could tell, no one was yelling at her. She hunched as she approached the gas pump, shoulders rising around her ears as she kept her head down. Kayla stuck close to her Toyota Corolla as she filled it up with gas. Her pulse raced as the numbers climbed, and her hand went to the wallet in her front pocket. Annoyance pricked the back of Kayla's neck. She shrugged it off. She would have had to get more gas. The game had just pushed her to do it now. Besides, she was better safe than sorry. That was a philosophy she wholeheartedly believed in. It had taken her so long to go through with this. An entire season had passed since Alexis's death, and she was only now facing it. Her mental block had lifted enough for Kayla to remember the empty pill bottles. Alexis lying face down on the bed, a pool of vomit on the pillow. The click of the gas pump jolted Kayla. The Corolla's tank was full. The commotion she'd heard when she arrived died down as the couple returned to their vehicle. Someone blasted Leonard Skinner as they turned out of the station and peeled off down the road. Kayla's shoulders rolled back. She sighed. As she hung the nozzle back up, her stomach growled. Her gaze turned to the convenience store with its bright fluorescent lights and flashing open sign. Glass doors and windows plastered with cigarette ads and information about the lottery. Maybe she should get a snack. Maybe that would help her make it through the night. But the rules had said nothing about eating. Kayla swallowed and got in the car. She fastened her seatbelt and sat behind the wheel, staring straight ahead. Every muscle in her body tensed. She shut her eyes and focused on her breathing. She could do this. She had to. Keep your eyes on the road and drive, Kayla thought. That's all I have to do. Keep my eyes on the road and remember Alexis. Before she could second-guess herself any further, Kayla started the car and pulled out of the gas station. She turned onto the road and kept going, trusting her gut or whatever higher power hated her to tell her where to go. According to the rules, she had to look for a road leading into the forest. Also, the road leading in had to go through the forest, too. For all Kayla knew, it also had to be at least 11 miles long, but the game would handle that one for her. Kayla picked at the skin on her cracked lips. Without even music to distract her, silence only heightened her anxiety. Fear sat in the pit of her stomach like a feral cat, clawing its way into her throat. 
Maybe a little music wouldn't hurt. The game hadn't started yet. Her hand leapt to the first radio preset button. Uptown Girl sprang from the Corolla's speakers. Kayla's mom loved 80s music, and Kayla turned to it whenever she felt lost. She didn't think she'd ever been more lost than she felt right then. Maybe Billy Joel could soothe her. Alexis had hated 80s music. Kayla had never learned why. Her favorite decade had been the 90s, which, as far as Kayla thought, sounded the same, albeit darker, grittier, grungier. Maybe that was what had drawn Alexis to it. If only I'd noticed the signs, Kayla thought. But hadn't she? Hadn't she seen the light fade from Alexis's eyes and the spark drop from her body? Hadn't she felt the fresh scars in places no one else got to see and wondered what more might appear? And hadn't she refused to acknowledge the truth for fear her life would unravel? The wish, she reminded herself. Think about the wish. Keep it in your mind. Keep your eyes on the road and drive now. Keep going. Trees rose on either side of the road. A side street beckoned her. She turned onto it, turn signal clicking and blinking as she did. The road into the woods wound deep into the trees, which meant it would be perfect for the evening. She could start the game now. Instead, she parked and turned the car off. Kayla's heart thudded against her ribcage. It wasn't too late to turn back. The game hadn't started. She could still go home. But home was where her pillow still had blonde hairs on it, where Alexis's jacket hung in her closet, still smelling like vanilla and soap. Home was where she could never escape the memory of Alexis, no matter how hard she tried. If she couldn't go through with this, she couldn't go home. She'd never be able to forgive herself for letting this opportunity pass. One chance. One moment. One last kiss. That was what she wanted. She would go through hell or whatever horror lay ahead for the chance to see her girlfriend again. Her gaze fell on the beaded necklace hanging from her rearview mirror. Alexis had made it for her. She'd done all she could to make Kayla feel special. Kayla inhaled. She pulled up the mile counter app on her phone, set it to notify her at each mile, and hit start. She turned the car on. She exhaled. Now or never. The indicator ticked as she turned onto the road. From here on out, she had to keep driving, no matter what happened. Mile one. She had to keep going for 11 miles, and she couldn't turn the engine off or leave the car. Those are the rules. All the sources Kayla had considered before coming out here said so, even if they didn't agree on much else. The beaded pendant hanging from her rearview mirror swung as she drove. Kayla tried not to watch it. Truth be told, she wasn't looking forward to what lay ahead. All the first-hand accounts she'd read online and all the speculation had made her more than a little nervous, and for good reason. Some people talked about how good it felt to get their wish, but on most of the forums, all she found was account after account of people who had failed to do the game the right way 
or people whom the game had traumatized. What did they say about mile one? She asked herself. It's the easiest mile, but something's off. Something should be off as proof that I've started the game. She wanted to check her phone and review the rules again. The last webpage she'd visited had a thorough breakdown of each mile, advising the reader what to expect from the journey ahead. She needed it now. But she couldn't turn the engine off, couldn't get out of the car, couldn't park it. Not until mile 11. The first mile was the easiest. According to the rules, all she had to do was turn her heater on. Since it was November, it was already running. She didn't have to do anything. Her heart fluttered, and she kept driving. The mile counter pinged. Mile two. Harder than the first, but Kayla couldn't see why. She already had her heater on, and as far as she could tell, nothing else was happening. Was something else supposed to happen? She wanted to look at the rules, but she couldn't stop driving. She had to keep going. The mile counter pinged again. Kayla took a deep breath and tightened her hold on the steering wheel. Out of the corner of her eye, she glimpsed movement in the trees. Shadows that looked like people. She ignored them. Kayla took another deep breath. Her pulse steadied, and she relaxed her hands on the steering wheel. Maybe this game was going to be even easier than she thought. The first four miles seemed like a walk in the park. Kayla felt some of her uneasiness ebb, replaced by fiery determination. She kept thinking about Alexis and how good it would feel to see her again, to touch her, to hold her, to kiss her. Her thoughts consumed her as she drove, and when her phone chimed to announce the end of another mile, she barely heard it. Mile five. Although she tried not to look around too much, the trees had gone missing. The entire forest had vanished. Somehow it had all gone without her noticing. Was that supposed to happen, or was it unique to her journey? Not for the first time, she wished she could check her phone, scan the resources she'd collected, but she couldn't. She'd read about what could happen if you didn't follow the rules of the game. But she couldn't remember the specifics. Anyway, the possibilities that her mind dredged up were probably a thousand times worse than what the internet proclaimed. She pictured herself stopping to check her phone, only for her car to burst into flames. Or maybe she'd slow down, spend too much time looking around, make eye contact with a shadow person. God only knew what could happen to her then. She didn't want to dwell on it. Kayla gripped the steering wheel tighter. She checked her surroundings. Light sparkled on the surface of a lake on the right. One that hadn't been there before. A glance at the moon confirmed it too now glowed brighter. What did any of it mean? Kayla. The voice sliced through the silence of the car and jolted Kayla from her musings. Maybe she was hearing things. Kayla, we are here. The voice came again, low and gravelly, followed by a chuckle that raised goosebumps on her skin. She'd forgotten about the voices. How did they know her name? 
We know, we know, we know. We know everything, Kayla. A high-pitched voice chimed in. We see you and we hear you. We even know your thoughts. A muscle jerked in Kayla's jaw. She had to keep her hands on the wheel, had to keep driving, had to keep the car moving no matter what. She'd have to ignore the voices, along with whatever else the road threw at her. Kayla. Kayla, Kayla, Kayla. Alexis is here, Kayla. She wants to talk to you. Foolish girl. You can't win this game. You can't beat us, Kayla. More voices joined, saying crueler things she couldn't block out. The volume rose to a fever pitch. Slurs, epithets, and curses drowned out everything, even her own thoughts. More than anything, she yearned to stop the car and stop the screaming, but she couldn't do that. Instead, she gritted her teeth and kept driving. Mile six. The chime of the phone sent the voices away. Relief washed through Kayla's body. She'd never been so grateful to sit in silence before. Out of the corner of her eye, the trees reappeared. She recognized the shapes of the pines and shadowed firs. Their branches dipped and lifted with the wind, a sight she only saw because she'd switched to fully looking at the forest once again. Her hands gripped the wheel and the car kept moving, but her gaze riveted to the trees. Kayla. The gravelly voice returned, but it was just inside her head. She brushed it off like she'd walked through a spider web. Outside the car loomed an impossible darkness, like all the stars had gone out. Maybe they had. Kayla didn't risk looking up at the sky. If the moon was still there, its glow had diminished. Headlights flashed and flickered, glaring off the dark asphalt and bright white lines along the sides. Kayla reached up to adjust the headlights, but no matter how far she twisted or how much she pulled, nothing affected them. They acted like sentient creatures capable of setting their own destinies. The lights continued to go haywire as she drove what she hoped was the last part of the mile. As the end of the world is closer than ever, hell damnation, fire for all eternity. The radio roared to life, spewing some evangelist's fire and brimstone sermon. Shit, that was the last thing she needed right now. She ran her fingers over the dial and hesitated. Was she supposed to turn the radio off? If only she could remember. Her gut told her no. So maybe she'd just have to grin and bear the onslaught. The lake of fire, I said, the lake of fire! Like the voices and the headlights, the radio was proof that the game was toying with her, doing all it could to make her break the rules and lose. Kayla had never been a good loser. She refused to lose this time. So, she kept driving. She couldn't stop the car. She couldn't turn off the radio. She couldn't forget Alexis. No matter how terrified she was, she couldn't forget Alexis. Kayla swallowed her fear and the lump in her throat. Her hand fell from the volume dial and settled back on the wheel. She pushed down on the gas pedal a little and readjusted her posture. Mile seven waited. Let's go, she murmured. 
Kayla dissociated. Mile 7 didn't differ from the others, so she let herself dwell on her wish again. Alexis. The heat of her mouth as it slanted over hers, the tug of her hand tangled in Kayla's hair. Her phone pinged. Mile 8. She let off the gas and let the car roll almost to a stop, tapping the pedal just to keep the car moving. She couldn't stop. Ahead, her headlights flickered. They cast eerie shadows over the trees. She tried not to look at the shadows. Cold crept into the car. It brushed the back of Kayla's neck and draped itself over her shoulders. If she hadn't turned on the heater before, she bet it wouldn't have worked now. Somehow, that logic fit the game. The chill stiffened her joints and burned her lungs. Her breath fogged up the windows. She used her sleeve to wipe off enough of the windshield to see. If she couldn't see, she couldn't keep going. She had to keep going, no matter what happened. Her teeth chattered. She shivered. Still, she kept driving. Alexis appeared in the road. Kayla kept herself from braking. She couldn't stop the car. Still, she couldn't imagine hating Alexis or the image of Alexis, even though she was dead. Even though she'd hurt herself worse than Kayla ever could. Right before she hit Alexis, Kayla squeezed her eyes shut. When she opened them again, Alexis had vanished. Her phone pinged again. She'd begun mile nine. Two more until she'd see Alexis for real. The Corolla's engine sputtered and the vehicle stalled. Kayla swore. Alexis appeared again. This time, blood dripped from her mouth and eyes. Kayla hesitated. She had to do something. Was she supposed to close her eyes? If she closed her eyes, how would she know where she was going? Maybe the game would get her car moving and guide it across the road again. Maybe she should close her eyes and trust the process. Kayla closed her eyes. She let out a shuddering breath. It was still so damn cold in the car. She knew without opening her eyes, her fingertips were blue. Kayla latched onto her car keys. With all the strength she could muster, she turned the key in the ignition. The car grumbled and sputtered in protest. Shit. She tried again, this time muttering a prayer to whatever god was listening. The engine sprang to life, along with Alexis's vocal cords. Don't you want to see me, Kayla? The voice was just as she'd remembered, and pain knifed Kayla's heart. Her eyes were still closed. She knew beyond a doubt that she couldn't open them. Now that the car had started, it was time to hit the gas. Kayla? said Alexis. Kayla hit the gas. She kept her eyes squeezed shut as the car surged forward and the mile counter sounded off. She'd survived mile nine. Only one more to go. Her eyes burned as she opened them. Unshed tears threatened to spill. After Alexis died, she thought she'd used up all her tears. Maybe it was fitting she shed some for her again. Something flashed in the rearview mirror. Teeth, or maybe scales. Kayla ignored it. 
The counter went off. Mile 11. The end was in sight. She swore she could do this. The car whirred as it powered down again. Kayla remembered that was supposed to happen. Even if the engine stopped, the car would still move forward, propelled by unseen forces. Kayla relaxed and tried to fix her eyes on the road again. A traffic light sprang into view, wrought iron with a stoplight hanging from it. The stoplight glowed an eerie red. Kayla closed her eyes and covered her ears. Flashing lights and colors shone through her closed eyelids, and terrifying screams and threats slipped between her fingers and into her ears. The radio started up again, blaring more of the preacher's sermon. Alexis's voice floated about the din, whispering Kayla's name before dissolving into tears. The dam holding back Kayla's own tears finally broke. She kept her eyes shut and her hands over her ears. What if this never ended? What if she'd lost the game somehow and this was her punishment? Her heartbeat faltered. Her breathing went shallow, erratic, and quick. Panic rattled her nerves. She wanted to scream, but somehow adding to the chaos felt like it might make it worse. Then she remembered. Mile 11. She could stop. Kayla put her foot on the brake and pressed until she couldn't press down anymore. The voices and the lights died down. She sat for a moment and breathed. Success was so close she could taste it. It was the cherry-scented lip gloss Alexis had always worn. Kayla didn't think she'd ever forget the sticky sweetness of Alexis's mouth as they kissed, her vanilla perfume swirling around both of them, the snake tattoo that curled up the side of her neck. The road ended abruptly. Kayla didn't notice the yellow dead-end sign until it was almost too late to stop the car. According to the rules, once she reached the dead end, she could stop the car and make her wish. Kayla let out a shaky laugh in relief. <laughs> She'd made it this far. Her journey was over. All she needed to do now was ask for what she wanted. Her tongue darted out to wet her lips. She closed her eyes. She thought again about kissing Alexis and telling her how much she meant to her. Let me see her she thought. Let me kiss her, please. One last time. That's all I need. In the quiet of the idling car, with her eyes still closed, Kayla could pretend she wasn't taking part in a terrifying game in the middle of the night. She could almost pretend she'd done something logical, something to give her closure without risking her life. Almost. Kayla. Kayla's eyes flew open. There, standing in front of the sign, was Alexis. No longer dripping blood, she looked as she had the last time Kayla saw her alive. Blonde pixie cut and bright brown eyes, snake tattoo, and a smile. Kayla's heart leapt. What was she supposed to do next? This was the end of the road. She'd won. 
Kayla beamed and wrenched the driver's side door open. It screamed in protest. Kayla climbed out of the car and stepped into the glow of the headlights. The air chilled her skin, still somehow warmer than inside the car, even with the heater on. Alexis was there. She was really there. And Kayla was going to kiss her. Her heart fluttered in a bittersweet way she recognized as she crept closer to Alexis, who was still smiling. Recognition flashed in her eyes. Kayla wiped tears from her eyes. Damn it, she wouldn't ruin her wish by crying. You look beautiful, Kayla said. Mile 11, Alexis replied. What did you wish for? You, of course, silly. Was it worth it? Of course. Kayla took another step closer to Alexis. She pulled her girlfriend into an embrace, marveling at how warm and solid she felt. Alexis leaned into the contact. As Kayla's eyelids drooped, Alexis flashed seven rows of suddenly serrated teeth at her. Kayla screamed and looked into Alexis's eyes. They were blood red and slitted, and nothing she knew. Right before the monster lunged, Kayla remembered the last rule. Don't get out of the car until you're home. Stay right here. We'll be back with more stories after this short break. Next, we find out what happens behind the apothecary's doors and preserved by tears by Mel and told by Nathan Blades. Ah, I see, the gangly doctor began with a disappointed tone. Then might I give you some advice? Do not touch them when they are crying. Understood? I never understood anything about the doctor who owned the shop across my flat. Dr. St. Germain dressed well enough, but old-fashioned. He talked in great details, yet I couldn't tell you a single thing about him except that he travelled. Sometimes he came back with some ethnic clothing piece, or with a talking bird that once said, Please only scream when necessary, or once with salt crusting the edge of his otherwise clean suit. That was all. Oh, and how much he paid people to spy on his own employees. Because I was one of those people he paid to spy on his employees. Five hundred pounds. Those two single things, and that was all I knew about Dr. St. Germain. I feel as though I should clarify why I did this for him. This is because I, Alex of the disowned last name, had stopped receiving support from my parents when I came out as non-binary. I should have gone straight into a trade, but I was on track to getting a decent degree in medicine, so I went on to King's College London. And he was covered, except for tuition. So I started this job with St. Germain. When we first met, I was people-watching, and that included the archaic apothecary from across the street of my flat. The place was more stone than cement, like the rest of the rundown shops. All converted into contemporary plain facades and straight lines, all except Germain's apothecary. The stone was warped and worn down, but the walls and holes left over from decorative leaves and pines 
could look like faces screaming if I was plastered enough. But the place wasn't anything special beyond that. Just sold the normal stuff you could buy at any boots. This doctor took one look at me and said, You've got a good head on those shoulders, don't you? Then he rubbed his chin and the next thing I knew, he offered me 500 quid for spying on his employees at the Fox's Apothecary and Fine Goods. I told him I couldn't watch the place all day, I had uni to go to. He said that it didn't matter, I would simply know when to watch. Which was easy enough. The longest I'd ever saw a single person working there was two months. I would watch from my window overlooking the street. This was made easier by the giant wall of windows at the shop. Yet, there's not much to get wrong at pharmaceutical retail, I'd imagined. Always boring the first few days. No personality or quirks yet. The most I saw was a woman make out with her girlfriend and smoke something clearly not legal. Another time I was chatted up. I stopped wearing dresses for a while, but that only lasted for a week. I remember the employee's last day distinctly because they had cried for hours before they left and never came back. Gone again, just like that. They would stop showing up every time. Easiest job ever. This bloke essentially paid me several hundred quid to do nothing. All those times he had come back to hire someone else and subsequently pay me too. Once, maybe twice a month, he would ask me how they'd done. I would start to tell him things most people would want to hear. That girl smoked pot, this guy made a dent in the wall, one person took a two-hour lunch, but Jermaine never cared about any of that. He would brush aside these and always asked instead, were they ever upset? I would think about it for a moment and have an answer for him eventually. Yeah, towards the end. Sure. Every single person who worked at Fox's always got upset before they stopped showing up. A few even stormed out of the shop wailing and pounding at their chest like some distraught housewife learned of her husband's demise in the war. Another was drenched in sweat, or had it been water, and screamed as they ran off. I told Jermaine and he always sighed and shook his head. Why was that his reaction? Every time. Disappointment instead of frustration, or even a bit of concern that his employees were leaving him suddenly. Did he leave some kind of test of courage in the shop? Were there dead body parts inside and these poor shopkeepers found the skeletons of his previous victims? Contraband? A feral animal? One day I decided to find out. He never said I couldn't go into the shop to do my spying, though honestly Jermaine never told me what I could or couldn't do. But he had said. Well, but no one was crying, so I figured there was no reason I couldn't go in. When I opened the door, a gold bell dinged at the top. Cheers, mate, the teller inside said from the race platform. Cheers. I looked around, and of course the interior was normal. Refurbished for modernization, plain in comparison to the historical facade outside. A square room with lines of shelves for Rennie and all your other non-emergency medical needs. Need any help, mate? They asked me. He looked like the laddest of lads you'd see down in Soho, but he was kind of cute, the eyeliner he had on. Brave type of lad, I decided. Nah, just faffing around. I smiled and saddled up to the register. Confidence low because of my ratty jumper, but they seemed to want to bite. I had their name tag and then stared. Rabbit? It, yeah. <laughs> they coughed and continued. Not, not my idea, but... I live as bravely as I can with this burden. <laughs> so, uh, Rabbit, you can call me Peter instead. Most do. <laughs> Peter? Peter Rabbit. I covered my mouth. 
but the look on his face, he knew exactly why I'd laughed. So, um, Peter, anything interesting happen in a place like this? He shrugged. Oh, come on. There's got to be something. Strange noises, bloody faucets, a few too many deadly poisons. He laughed. Oh, well, you have an imagination. I pouted, leaning on the table. Guess one too many late night reads on how to dissect a spleen or something. Oh, you're a doctor or something. Hopefully one day. Cool. But that's where the imagination comes from. He paused, a thought crossing his expression as he eyed the only hallway. He chewed on his bottom lip and it was honestly cute. Well, um, I perked up. Was there a locked closet he wanted my help opening to find Jermaine's skeletons? He finally said, there is this one weird thing here, but it's, uh, it's gross. His expression looked worried, but I motioned for him to lead the way. The Muppet had an expression on his face that told me he thought he was getting lucky, and I was too excited to find out what the weird and gross thing was to care. And who knew? He might prove me wrong. We went to a back room with a wood door as old as the front, and when he turned the knob it was like stepping back in time. A stuffy, posh study room. Books everywhere, two glass display cabinets, a table full of sciencey bits straight out of a Frankenstein movie. I deflated. Not your typical overcrowded back room, but not what I'd expected either. I slid my finger across the table and said, Yep, definitely gross. He laughed. No, 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 not that. He pointed at the glass cases and shelves on either side of the room. Jars and jars and jars full of preservation liquid and various organic matter, from animals to foodstuffs to human body parts. They were all bloated and ancient-looking, so I didn't think they were recent victims, but not exactly normal either. Jesus, is, is that a lizard? I rushed over to press my nose against the glass. And a monkey's end, and for some reason ginger roots, and even I think half a blobfish. What? It's really gross. I already shoved it into the back. Every time I saw it, its one eye kept staring into my soul. That's true, I said and shuddered at the thought. Why would anyone keep a blobfish? I turned around and noticed two things. One, my dude here was biting his lip again and not able to look me in the eye. Two, there was a heart in the cupboard behind him. The jar was larger than the others, and there was an unnecessary amount of fluid in that one compared to the rest. Most were filled until the object inside was covered. This one was filled so close to the brim, I wondered how the jar had closed. The heart was a normal human-sized specimen, but it sat up there as if specifically enthroned to stand out. So, uh, the lad had leaned against the table under the case and rubbed at the back of his neck, biting his lip. You, uh, free for a couple later? I smiled, and that seemed to do him in. It was very cute. I sauntered over slowly. We've got class. His gaze dropped and his puppy eyes caught me. I stopped right in front of him and pulled at a curl in his eyes. His blush rushed across his face. Free now, though. Oh. I grabbed his hands and put them on my waist. Oh. Calm down, my dude. Whoa. Uh, really? Calm down? He was shaking and a little too tense to be nervous about a simple kiss. You are right? Y yeah. He tried to laugh, but it tapered into a sob. I don't know why I'm acting like this. Uh, not like... The sound of glass shards cracking and water sloshing jolted us. A sharp scent pricked my nose. I jumped back. 
He looked up at the same time as the heart hit his head. I scrambled back for something to lean against and yelped, Shit! Again? He picked up the heart and his eyes scrambled around. I saw the glisten of extra moisture in them. The thought tickled the back of my head. When they are crying. He sniffled and so did I. The burn from the formaldehyde getting to us, that's all. I looked down at the heart in his hands just before he walked out. And even though it was fresh out of its jar, it looked extremely wet. Preservation fluid tended to be thicker than water due to the, well, preservation aspect. But this was different. It was absolutely dripping. Clear, thick trail of fluid marking Peter's path. I went to find him to see if I could help, but when I found him over his sink, still holding the heart, it was more than just the organ in his hand dripping into the sink. His shoulders shook. He was trying to hide it, but he was gasping too. Sniffling. Coughing. He wasn't just crying, he was sobbing. Do not touch them. Jermaine's wide grin when he last spoke to me filled my head, chilling my spine. I bolted. I holed up in my flat until class, and was exhausted from the unnecessary anxiety. I realised how stupid it was to have bolted. The guy had only cried. Crying is an entirely valid emotion, and not something ominous from some flighty doctor you don't even really know. You'll know when to watch. I brushed the thought away. I would go back and apologise to the guy tomorrow. Too tired today. I unlocked my door, sorely needing to relax. Hey! A hand slammed between the door and the frame as I tried to shut it. And there he was, Register Lad, crying. Uh, I'm sorry about it earlier. Uh, things break a lot for no reason at the shop, but hey, it happens, right? <laughs> his eyes were a little too wide and his smile a little too forced while the tears streamed down for me to relax. Peter? Anyway... I wanted to ask again if you wanted that cuppa. I didn't scare you off, did I? I was just making sure. Hey, hey, could you let me in? I'm worried I scared you. I didn't ease open the door, but I still had it open enough that we could still see each other. Still see him. Tears and snot stained his shirt like a flood. You kind of... I did. I scared you off, didn't I? <laughs> let me make it up to you. You're so cool. I don't want to lose you. Please... Please? He was sobbing and coughing around the tears that fell into his mouth. My dude, it's eight at night and you're clearly... He tried to force the door open and I, I slammed the door out and into his face and quickly shut it. But he recovered faster than I had imagined and kept jiggling at the door handle so I could never lock it. Please, let me in. Do not touch them when they are crying. Jermaine's words echoed through my head, feeding my heart's tightness, knotting my stomach. I, I might throw up, but I kept my breathing as steady as I could. Understood. I didn't, but I was too freaked out. I listened to St. Germain. He started rapping at the door, coughing and coughing, until I felt him hit the door and slide down it. He started choking, wheezing. His mouth smacked loudly like it was dry. I slammed 999 on my phone as soon as I got the door locked. He was still weakly hitting from the other side, but I ignored him as I rushed to get my words out to the operator. They told me not to open the door or go outside until the police arrived. I did just that, but the minutes crawled. Every bang on my door marking time. 
And then suddenly... I didn't do anything, though, after five minutes, I opened my door, and it hit something. It pushed with my whole body until an arm plopped into my line of sight. I still. A moment later, I dared to slowly peer past, my heart beating fast, my hands shaking. When I finally looked around my door, I found him. The desiccated husk of a body. My neighbours slowly filtered out then, all of them unable to look at the corpse in front of my door, and instead asking after me. I ignored them, focused entirely on what used to be Peter. His skin had sunk, wrinkled as if someone had wrung him dry. Or he'd cried himself to death. The body suddenly wheezed, and I fell back, then watched those eyes press out a final squeeze of tears. The orbs watched me as if he still craved that kiss we never had. Don't go away. There are more stories to come. We'll be right back. Up next, we present a tale about two best friends exploring an abandoned structure in the jungle in The Melwell by me, Davis Walton, told by Michael Turrentine. The rainforest buzzed all around us. Some bird was making a racket up in the canopy. Cody wrapped his hands around my wrist and hoisted me up on the slope. His biceps and forearms flexed under a glimmer of sweat. I reminded myself to look away from that. My sneakers squished up through mud and scratched against loose rocks and tree roots. We should have waited for dry season, I grunted. This would have been so much easier. I pressed my foot down onto a rock and grabbed a hold of a tree trunk. I spidered my way up and landed on a somewhat even surface. Aw, come on, Cody said. Don't be such a baby. Besides, the place looks cooler after rain. Cody wiped the sweat off his face with the bottom of his shirt. All of his abs yawned into view, perfectly accentuated by a light treasure trail running down the middle. I looked away and focused on literally anything else, like my shoes or a tree or some bush. How'd you even find this place? I asked. I pressed my fingers into my stomach. I knew that, in theory, the muscles were there, underneath somewhere, but no matter how hard or how long I worked out, there was never anything impressive to look at. And that didn't make any sense at all because I was skinny, like scarecrow skinny. But I guessed it was just because I'd always be the rail-thin loser with the athletic best friend no matter what I tried. Even if said athletic best friend becomes your workout partner and you feel even worse about yourself because you can't lift the same weights. Carson and I found it, Cody said. I shut up and wondered when they could have done that, and why Cody didn't ask me to come along. But he was bringing me along now, right? That mattered. Yeah, of course it did. When? Cody shrugged. I don't know. Like a month ago? Carson said it was some vanity project someone built for their kid. I said, it's a military project. I rolled my eyes. Did you find out what it actually is? Nah, Cody said. It just looks really cool. So, what is it? A bunker? Water tower? And there were lots of those in Panama. 
Back when the United States was occupying the Canal Zone, they fenced off the whole area and went to work. They built dozens of barracks around the country that were converted into homes and businesses. They left behind bunkers that were infested with giant cockroaches. And I mean that literally. It's like the biggest species of cockroach in the world, apparently. And if you walked up one specific hill, there was an abandoned radio tower and weather station. No, I was just joking when I said it was a military project. My dad said there wasn't anything like that built for the government, Cody said. Are you sure it's just not above his clearance, I said, knowing full well that his dad could hardly ever talk about government work. Carson's probably closer to the truth, Cody said. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to have something like... Well, you'll see. You really want to keep the surprise a surprise, don't you? I said. He smiled and... Blushed? No. He just turned in towards himself. I know Carson and I found this place, Cody said. But, I don't know. I feel like it'd be cooler for you to see it. You wouldn't bull through it like we do. It's old and you like old things. I perked up. How old are we talking about? He brushed the sweat off with his shirt again. And again, I looked. I needed to stop doing that. It'd be weird if he caught that, but at least I could explain that it was because I wanted to have abs like those. Muscles like those in general would be cool. But was that why I was staring? I mean, that's what made the most sense. I'm jealous of how he looks, and that's why I keep staring. It definitely wasn't the other thing. Cody huffed. I think, like, not Casco Antigua old, but maybe early Canal old. He squinted and pointed weakly at a curve on the path. Almost there, Cody said. You'll see. We made our way past a tree and up the base of a pond. I gasped. There, in the middle of the water, covered in moss, leaves, and vines, was a stone tower. Near the waterline was a small window showing how hollow the tower was on the inside. What the hell? I asked. What even is this? Exactly, Cody said. Told you it'd be cool. I looked at the tree line, up on the hills, and around us. There weren't any abandoned houses nearby. If Carson's theory was right, then there'd have to be someone's house around here. But even that didn't make sense. It was so quiet here. No insects or bird calls. It reminded me of trips up to the States and walking around their forests in winter. All you could hear was the leaves beneath your feet. And your breath. Cody took off his shirt and kicked off his shoes. I straightened up. What are you doing? Cody shrugged and waded into the water. It's hot as balls out. I want to go for a swim. You don't know what's in there, I said. There could be snakes or caimans. Carson and I did it. I wasn't Carson, though. Cody dipped beneath the water and came back up. He brushed his hair out of the way. I wished I looked like he did. Cody splashed a spray of water towards the shore. Besides, I have to show you something inside the tower. I must have done something with my face, because he grinned. I set my backpack down, kicked off my shoes took off my socks and faced away from Cody when taking off my shirt. I covered up my stomach with my arms and walked into the water. We swam over to the tower and I traced the stone with my fingers. How far deep do you think it goes? I asked. I actually already know, Cody said with a charismatic wink. He knew from when he came with Carson. 
Of course, they did everything together without me. Cody's hands found purchase on the tower's window, and he lifted himself out of the water. He looked out and smiled. Well, what are you waiting for? I snagged a hand on the bottom of the window and started pulling myself up. It was either too far up, or I was too weak, because I slipped right away and fell straight into the water. I sucked in a gulp of pond water and choked. The water below us was so much deeper than I had expected it to be, and so much darker. I breached the surface and coughed. Dude, do you need help getting inside? I grumbled. No, I can do it myself. Cody looked annoyed. Or sad, maybe. He probably knew I was kidding myself. Just be careful, okay? Cody said. Oh, and watch your step once you get up to the window. There's not much space. I gripped onto the edge of the tower's window and started pulling myself up. My hands, wrists, and arms yelped out in pain. I grunted and my feet found some leverage on the tower stones. I screwed an arm into place and managed to get my torso up to the window. And it all hurt so much. Like if I managed to get one tiny thing wrong, then I'd slip straight back into the water and have to get Cody to help me. And then, I did it. I pulled myself into the window and got down the tower floor. Cody lifted his arms up in the air. Dude, you did it. He pulled me in for a hug. I smiled. Guess I'm good for something. I looked around and then down. And then even further down. On the inside of the tower was a staircase. And that spiraled down along the curve of the tower. It must have gone down for at least a story... And amazingly enough, no water was on the inside at all. There were a few puddles, but that must have been leftovers from the rain yesterday. Jesus, I said. Just wait until we get to the bottom, Cody said. I looked out the window really quick. It was so weird seeing the view from the inside of here. How'd you even find this place? I don't know, Cody said. Carson said he found out about it from a friend. Cody stepped down about seven or eight steps. You coming? He asked. Oh, yeah. One sec, I said. There was something that caught my eye in the corner. It was a crumpled up piece of paper. I picked it up and unraveled it. It was part of a kid's drawing. Except it wasn't entirely complete. And I was actually really surprised that it had even survived out here for this long at all. It was faded and the colors were all almost gone, but I could make out the kid's handwriting. The Melwell. I mumbled out loud. Cody looked over my shoulder. The what? How the fuck do I know what that means? I asked. It was a drawing of the tower we were in. On it, there was the drawing of a little boy smiling and waving. Next to him was some random cluster of shapes. I had to squint hard, but I think it looked like a horse's head. The rest of the drawing wasn't there, so I couldn't tell for sure. But the head definitely looked equine. A knight and his castle? Cody said. Yeah, I think so. Wonder what happened to him. Cody shrugged. Maybe he was an embassy kid and moved? We started making our way down into the depths of the tower and reached its bottom. There wasn't much else here. I was actually a little disappointed, but it confused me. Why would someone build this out in the middle of nowhere? 
Maybe it was just some rich person vanity project. Hey. I'm sorry, Cody said. I cocked my head to the side. About what? Cody swung his arm at me, and I felt a searing pain in my side. He lifted his arm further, and I could feel something rip inside of me. Cody pulled his hand back, and I could see he was holding a knife, and it was covered in blood. My blood. Carson? Cody asked. Carson stepped out from behind the staircase. It took you long enough. Been waiting for so fucking long. I wanted to say my goodbyes, Cody said. I slumped down to the floor. What's going on? Carson knelt down and grabbed my hair. He lifted my head up. I tried grabbing his arms, but Carson was always stronger than me. Than either of us. He rammed my head up against the wall and all I could see were stars. Dude, Cody said. Go easy on him. What's the point? Carson asked. This is what he's here for, isn't it? Why are you doing this? I asked. I have a friend you should meet, Carson said. An old friend. He stepped out to the side, and behind him was a small tunnel. If I didn't know better, I'd say it was for irrigation to keep the tower from flooding. Inside the tunnel, a pair of glazed white eyes stared back at me. What is that? I screamed. The creature, whatever it was, stuck its head out. Its pale, almost translucent skin was glued down across the length of its skull. Black, stringy, and unkempt hair sloped down across its face and over a pair of skin-covered horns. And then I remembered that those were called ossicones. Unique to giraffes and okapis. Its body crunched as it squeezed its way through the small entrance and it rose up into the tower. It had a long, spindly neck that looked far too long to be functional for its body. It stepped out onto the tower floor with its paws, feeling around for something. For me. It was feeling around for me. It sniffed the air and pointed its head at me. It had forward-facing eyes. No prey animal has forward-facing eyes. Cody, please. Please, Cody, help me. I tried to get up and slipped. Cody and Carson were already up several steps on the staircase. Cody tried to go up even further, but Carson grabbed him by the arm and pulled him to his level. You wanted to watch him eat, right? Carson asked. So watch. The creature opened its mouth, reared back, and went in for the kill. In our next tale, we discover the consequences of being made up of so much water in Holy Water by M. Regan, told by Asim Peacock. I read somewhere there's no such thing as new water. My response to this, a prompting, lilted hum, resounds against the warped sides of my portable bathtub echoing within the dents that years and negligence have carved into tin curves. You have dropped it more than once during our travels. Last week, when you tripped in the wastes of yet another nameless, desiccated city, the tub was nearly ruined by debris, nearly punctured by the scattered incisors made by ruined window panes. Nearly. 
but it wasn't. Instead, the tin's cacophonous clatter had resounded down the streets, redolent of an overdue death knell. So that was all right. If we've learned anything during our travels, it is that a tub like this can withstand a fair amount of clumsiness. It is not as fragile as the conch shell or the jars or the sea glass mobile that you are presently struggling to untangle. I don't remember where anymore. Where I read it, I mean. There's sweat on your brow, your upper lip, under your arms, from the heat, I suppose. But your fingers remain pale, despite the weather's endless efforts. I watch them as they twitch, sleek and silvery minnows wriggling on the end of varicose lines. Your veins are so beautifully blue. Your wrists are so stunningly scarred. You are, as ever, so exquisitely human. Give that to me, my dear, I gently command, reaching out with hands that are not, not pale, not scarred, not human. Once upon a time, these hands wove Zhao Zhao Shu silk with incomparable ease. That was lives ago, of course, bodies ago, but water remembers. There's gratitude in your grin when you pass me the snarled sun catcher, its kaleidoscopic shards dripping down my arms with the clarity of dew, the chill of a fresh spray. Light spills off my elbows and onto the moldy tile floor, shifting and swimming and silent. Ephemeral flotsam. Don't get me wrong, I know it could have been, like, one of those pseudoscience articles. You continue. There is a tidal predictability to your attention. As I watch, your gaze flows over to the jars. What remains in them is mostly condensation at this point. The brine pooled in their bottoms, shallow enough to look accidental. Which it is, in a way. Certainly we did not intend for their levels to get so low. But it also isn't, because what could we do? I try not to hear the weariness in your sigh, focused instead on the melancholic tinkle of the glass I'm unwinding. You know, those articles that use just enough logic in primary school science to make a claim that sounds plausible and then everyone just, just believes it because those half-lies are easier to wrap your head around than the overly complicated truth of the matter. Hmm, I hum again. In the deep, private darkness of my own mind, I recall my brief existence as Amabie, scaly and bird-billed. And the day that I met another you before you on a beach in Higo province. The land of the rising sun was like another world entirely beneath twilight's purple shroud. And the shoreline echoed with the demand for which that time of day was colloquially named. Tasokare, who are you? It was a good question then. It is a good question now. In answer, I allowed my ocular aura to pulse and expand, 
to illume that liminal space between sand and sea, day and night, natural and preternatural. Good harvest will continue for six years, I deign to inform that version of you. If disease spreads, show a picture of me to those who fall ill, and they will be cured. Everything came to pass exactly as I predicted, and there was no science involved at all, pseudo or otherwise. What might this you say to that revelation, if you remembered? You may yet remember someday. Water remembers. The way this article phrased it, you tell me, working to uncork those hollow, hallowed jars, is that Earth started with a certain amount of water, in glaciers, in the ocean, in lakes and rivers or whatever, 71% of the planet's total surface trapped here by our atmosphere. Right? And that same amount has been caught in the hydrologic cycle since then. You grunt, one cork giving you particular trouble. Wound braids of rope chafe against your jeans when you brace the not-ornamented bottle between your thighs, clearly hoping that better leverage will help you wiggle the stopper free from its salt-crusted neck. When it does not, you set the whole of it aside to deal with later rather than accidentally shatter something in frustration. So basically, any cup of water I might pour for myself will have already gone through the system of a dinosaur and Socrates and Mary Magdalene and... I don't know, Jacques Cousteau? <laughs> From what I understand, Jacques Cousteau did interact with quite a bit of water before he died. I comment in tones made mild by humor. The mobile hangs freely now, its baubles and beads twirling on their weedy threads. I delight in this pretty pleasure, recalling with fondness those similar strings that were plaited into the hair of my Kelpie body. There are still days when I miss the locks of Ross and Cromarty, the teeth-sharp ridges and damp gray gullets of the Scottish Highlands. But I was really only there for you. Besides, the locks are probably gone. Most lakes are. Most rivers, too. Will there be any ocean left, I wonder, by the time we find the coast? Hey. You smile, a comforting thing, and I am comforted, though perhaps not for the reasons you assume. I'm sorry, don't worry about it, alright? It probably wasn't an accurate article. Compassion further curls the corners of your lips. Lopsided, the expression crests like a wave, rising, falling, crashing. In its wake, sentiment sweeps over me, followed by a warm rush of affection, and I barely resist the urge to drag you down, to pull you under, when you lean forward to collect the sun catcher. I would have dragged you down once. I did pull you under once. Eons have passed since then, but you have still never been more gorgeous than the day that you drowned in my embrace your throat strung with silver bubbles, and the whites of your eyes nacre bright. Now that we're talking about it, you muse, I'm pretty sure I read somewhere else that the earth is always creating new water in its crust and stuff, although, well, it's obviously not producing it fast enough. 
Not its fault, really, I murmur, turning in the tub's basin. The perpetually wet fabric of my Nixie skirt sticks to metal walls, and I bunch the soggy sheaves more comfortably around my legs before adding. If that is so, I mean, there's a lot to keep up with here on the surface. Thirsty animals, greedy people, storms and heat that nothing was meant to survive. Not everyone was trained to treat precious resources with the respect and care that you were, Amaya. My praise adds an undercurrent of pride to your beam. The mobile is laying across a tattered grimoire, gingerly arranged so that its components cannot retwist themselves before you have a chance to hang it beside the grit-scabbed casement of the hovel that we are sitting in for the night. Once that is taken care of, you reach out again, offering me your hands. Water is sacred, you whisper. I nod, slipping my fingers between your own with all the reverence you deserve. Your body is my temple, I breathe in reply. And it is, it is, a shrine unto me, recycled and reprocessed, built and rebuilt over ceaseless centuries. What magic you now possess has been condensed from that which was contained in the use before you. Each of your previous incarnations strong enough to hold me in their cupped palms for a little longer, a little longer, drop by drop by drop by drop, you have amassed holier fractions, more consecrated ratios, you have stored them in the sodden vessel of your brain, your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, your blood, your skin. Even your bones are 31% brackish and blessed. For now. For now. But there is more to us than now. Even if you do not remember. Even if you never remember. Though, I suspect you will. Eventually. Water does not just have memory. It has patience. It is impossibly, inhumanly patient. And though I have not told you yet, I already know how our story will end. When layers dissolve and tissues return to dust, when the rains stop forever and the desert overtakes the sea, when the last tenacious puddle has dispersed into the ether and all life has been compressed into a single pearly tear. You and I will be one, my love. You and I will be complete. Undine, you murmur, urging our joined hands towards my fangs. Your wrist is softer than sponge in my mouth. My tongue is sharp enough to gouge new scars. Undine, Help me worship you. Obliging. Devoted. My teeth sink down. And together, we fill my tub.
stay right here. We'll be back with more stories after this short break. Up next, we bring you a dark tale of love between the undefined and Tenebremon Amour by Pippa Bailey, told by Erica Sanderson. I close my book as the sun descends. Its last trailing fragments of gold, peach and cerise slither away from my window frame and trail down the road outside my house. Orange light dances along candy-floss clouds and between wisps of sweet air. It tucks children into bed and bids farewell to a slowing world. It welcomes the night and all who dwell under its domain. I slip my book onto my bedside table and undress. I shower and wash my hair, blowing bubbles from the white suds that cover my skin. My excitement bleeds into nerves. It spirals around my body, agitating my heart and making my ears ring. I sit on my bed, legs crossed, quivering, and wait patiently for them to arrive. My lover and my dearest friend. Love is a wonderful thing. It doesn't choose sides. It doesn't know how to. People will tell you that love hurts, that passion and pain must go hand in hand, which in most cases is true. Part of the human experience is to love and lose. Grief tastes like ash in old pennies, and lust like hot mulled wine, sherbet and bloody steak. Most people who profess to know love haven't met them, but most will in time. What people fail to say is that love doesn't discriminate against who you are or what feels good. Love doesn't care what genitals you do or don't have. Love doesn't have straight lines or come with warning labels. Love is immeasurable and as twisted as darkness. I met darkness when I had forgotten how to be alone. I feel them. They're here. Ribbons of black caress my fingers and loop my arms in a delicate embrace. Their deep warm saturates me, a silken shroud electrifying my skin. They draw lines of goosebumps along my flesh in aching arches. I let them carry me, darkness, like smoke, spindles a blackened thread, shadows shaping and twisting against my frame. I close my curtains and isolate us from the world. We're supposed to hunt for our partners, like animals. We line up in bars, swipe apps and compress ourselves into a socially measured scale of normality. We're bound by generations of those who have never found their darkness, always looking beyond the important fragile moments the ones that fall between the cracks of everyday life. We forget what it means not to consume, to not have it now, and the joy of sitting with silence. Silence is a long-forgotten friend. We tumble between layers of what we want versus what we should want. Tradition dictates not only how we love, but who we should love. Darkness strokes me, like fire licks at smouldering coals, like the ocean smothers sand, biting deep, wave after wave. They kiss my stomach and chest, like a flickering tongue, rippling the length of me. They move inside me, and I in them. We are one in this solitary moment. Our screams penetrate time, reshaping the world. I'd bounced from dissatisfaction to melancholy and back again, constantly seeking something I didn't understand. We're supposed to love ourselves for who we are, but we spend so much time in masquerade, it's hard to tell where the fiction begins and ends. 
A soft voice had called to me from beneath my bed, melodic words drifting up through my mattress and resting beside me on the pillow. They knew me better than I knew myself. They had been with me since the beginning, but I'd never taken the time to appreciate them. They'd played with me as an energetic child, darkness's shadow running beneath my feet, my twin mirroring me from below. As a teen, darkness called me on hot days, drifting below trees to wrap me in a cloak of dappled shade, lazily stroking my hair with ebony fingers, hiding me from sight as I stole my first kiss, smoked my first cigarette, and the many times I ran away from home. Now darkness arrives at night, hot, sticky and saccharine, steeped in rosewood and licorice. The nearby monomore, Ant. We weave a flesh and shadow magic atop my bed, white-knuckled and wood-splintered. I taste them, a heady aged rum. Fire fills my body, my stomach knots, a twisting, writhing mamba dance. Darkness is not silent as many would have you believe. They are deep breaths and jaws snapping shut. The scrape of branches against glass on stormy nights and gentle sighs. They are the whimper and scream of torn flesh and shattered bone. They are a baby's first and last tear-streaked cry. I learned that it is not who we love, but how we love that matters. My darkness holds no form, no breasts to cup, no cock to stroke or pussy to tease. They are all and nothing. They offer themselves to me each and every night. They are lust and rippling heat. They are consent and the throb of a new wound, blood-streaked limbs and severed arteries. They bring me autumn leaves and spring flowers caught in their wake, lining my face with blossoms. They teach me words of new worlds and what lies beyond the veil. They show me horrors, the things that too love darkness as much as I. Darkness keeps their secrets, stories that have never seen the light of day, tales of blistered flesh and stolen voices, lives snuffed out for pleasure or pain. They tell me of the creatures I cannot see, footsteps in the night, teeth that chatter inside closets and holes in walls. To love darkness, its whip-crack sting, black coffee heat and ever-changing form, is to love yourself. We share hours of bliss, but darkness cannot stay, for they no more belong to me than I to them. We lie, entwined atop my twisted, sweat-streaked covers. The night calls to them, and I cannot deny the night its darkness. Darkness knows they must go. I open my windows and doors, allowing the twilight air to penetrate my home. The night calls to darkness again. Darkness lingers longer than they should, writhing between my sheets, inhaling my musk, amber and vanilla, a symphony to counter their own. We say our goodbyes, my heart heavy. I stand naked in the starlight as darkness leaves me. I peer up to the heavens, those swirls of ancient flame, caustic and consuming. I wonder how many have burned bright and faded since darkness came to be. Darkness dances over rooftops, bouncing from satellite dishes and TV aerials. They tap dance atop parked cars and along chain-link fences, catching in the loops and twists of rusted metal. They tease sleeping dogs, bark and snarl like wild animals. They rest in the smoke that plumes from chimney pots, twisting the charred air. 
The night is a bitter, jealous friend. They warn darkness that time is short, but darkness doesn't listen. They splash in streams and follow oceans. They scale mountains and float high above the earth. Midnight stars slice holes in darkness's coat, piercing their flesh. Darkness howls and moans, their pain ruptures the sky. They tremble beneath the might of the moon. Beams of moonlight grind darkness like a millstone on dried grain, warping and corrupting them. The night tosses darkness around like a plaything. I cry, but I know darkness. I know their strength. I know they were made for this. Quivering holes appear in darkness's body, aching tears from streetlights and cars that trundle by in sporadic bursts. Darkness cowers behind buildings and against walls. They sneak along with the animals of the night, rustling amid trash with rats and stroking the underbelly of fighting cats. I watch darkness wither as they hunt for safety, battered and bruised by the night. Darkness deserves better. The sun begins to rise, tendrils of golden light piercing through darkness, cleaving their form into fragments. They cling to the underhang of roofs and doorways. They crawl bare across the ground, whispering their farewells. Sunlight bathes the sky in an effulgent glow, rendering darkness to dust, swept away by the waking world. I close my door and go to the kitchen. I make myself tea and collapse back onto my bed. I dry my tears against my pillows and slip beneath the covers, watching the sky grow bright outside. Blue replaces gold and clouds evict stars. I turn onto my side and tuck the covers between my legs. My eyes focus on the dark patch in the corner of the room where my bedside table blocks the window's blinding light. I watch for any movement. A voice whispers to me from beneath my bed. They tell me that they missed me, and they will return tonight. They have more to show me, and new stories to tell. Darkness goes where I cannot, into the cracks between things, breaching the barriers between planes. I will sleep now, and dream of impossible things, and wait patiently for darkness to return, for they must rest too. Tenebre, mon amour. Next up, a tale of a frightened young schoolboy and a love that dare not speak its name and tie a black thread to everything that remains by Eric LaRocca, told by Louis Pollard. It had nearly been three days since Llewellyn Smythe's untimely passing at the tender age of 16 when Bartram Evans first saw the poor boy's ghost wandering the attic of the boy's dormitory. A pale apparition with an impossibly bulbous head and skin as reflective as metal. Those who had known Llewellyn knew him as one of the finest and most capable young men at Sainsbury Seal Academy for Male Excellence. Beloved by his peers and renowned in the region for his talents at playing cricket, it had been the talk of the school when his parents had sent a career to the academy with the letter urging him not to return home for the holiday recess as his sister was gravely ill with diphtheria. It had been quite a shock to Bertram, who had always remained at the school's lodgings during the winter break, to share the dormitory with another guest, especially 
company as renowned and as well-liked as Llewellyn Smythe. Even more surprising, another student had been relocated to their dormitory for the winter holiday, a foreign exchange student from New Delhi named Imran. The three boys played board games, solved puzzles, drank hot chocolate, and commiserated over being on their own for the holiday season. The school's notoriously grim French instructor, Monsieur de Viles, their only chaperone. It had curled their stomachs when they found Llewellyn in his bed, his eyes firmly closed, hands folded neatly across his chest like a mummified emperor. There had been no indication that the dear boy had been ill, no warnings that death might be a visitor at his bedside. As was custom, the body had been removed from the dormitories and ferried to the boy's hometown in Exeter, so that the family could make proper arrangements. Though his body had been gone for nearly three days, something dangerous lingered at the dormitories of the Sainsbury Seal Academy, something that had seemed to remain like a horrible aftertaste, like piles of snow after a winter storm. Bertram had known something was wrong. He could tell in the way that the air seemed to still and pulse, the way it does before a blizzard. He had wondered when it would make its presence known to him, when the dreadful thing that was approaching his safety would fully appear. Finally, it had. He first saw the boy's spirit loitering beside the attic window, an impish wraith curled against a ring of moonlight, the same way a predatory bird might covet half-dead prey. Perhaps even more astonishing than seeing Llewellyn's spirit in all its horrific glory was the sight of how death had robbed him of nearly all his beauty and charm. Most of the boys in the academy could admit that Llewellyn had been one of the most handsome young men in their ranks. It was no surprise that many of the willful young ladies at the neighbouring Miss Turcott School for Exceptionally Gifted Young Women fancied him and competed for his attention whenever he was near. In his quietest and most private moment, Bertram had entertained lustful thoughts of Llewellyn, the academy's most revered effigy of boyhood the finest specimen of teenage masculinity for miles. Those thoughts came and went as Bertram gazed upon the boy's ghost as he milled about in the attic, as if tirelessly searching for a modicum of comfort when there was none to be had. Bertram had nearly retched at the sight. Llewellyn's reflective skin, peppered with crusted black warts as large and as bulbous as plants dragged screaming from their beds in Hades. Even more upsetting, the poor boy's head resembled a hot air balloon, or even an upside down bowling pin, something that appeared to be inflating larger and larger by the moment and fit to burst. Does it hurt? Bertram asked, wincing as he covered his mouth. Llewellyn nodded, some of his warts exploding in glittering black mist as he stirred there, and new ones sprouting in their place. Why did you come back? Bertram asked. Llewellyn's face hardened. Death has made a home here. It wants to spread further. Bertram shrank slightly as the spirit held out its hand, 
a roll of black thread sitting in its open palm. You'll take care to tie a black thread around your finger if you don't wish to follow, the spirit told him. But one of you will. Then, without the fanfare he had come to expect from him in life, Bertram watched as Llewellyn's ghost was pulled back into the all-devouring dark, as if lassoed by some unseen illusionist. He couldn't help but wonder to where the spirits wander after they make their presence known to mortals. He wondered if Llewellyn had returned to some otherworldly pasture, an enclosure set somewhere between the thin boundary between life and death, where spirits could rest as they made their journey to cross over. Regardless, wherever he went didn't matter to Bertram. What mattered now was warning Imron of what he had seen and telling him what he had been told by Llewellyn's spirit. Imron seemed only to be half listening to Bertram as he packed his valise, preparing to move back to his normal lodgings as winter recess was swiftly coming to a close in a matter of a few days. Bertram insisted, telling his story and wrapping a black thread around both his index finger and Imron's. To keep it from spreading further, Bertram assured him, his eyes lingering on his roommate perhaps a little too long. He said it'll work. But Imron didn't seem concerned. He was already sitting on the bed, unbuckling his belt and slipping off his trousers. Aren't you going to join me? he asked, unbuttoning his shirt. Bertram was only too glad to, kicking off his shoes and undoing his pants until he was completely naked from the waist down. Like all their lovemaking sessions, it was quick and about as cordial as a handshake between two gentlemen. However, this time, Bertram couldn't shake the feeling that someone, something, was watching them and delighting in their pervicity. After they had finished, Imran went to the sink to wash himself. Bertram remained in bed and thought of how harmless their courtship had begun. If you could even call it a courtship, that is. He thought of the night it first began, the same night Llewellyn had died, and how Imran had asked to join him in his bed for warmth on a particularly cold evening. Bertram recalled how it hadn't been long before hands became curious to explore one another and the clothes were pulled off bit by bit until their bodies had no secrets from each other. Perhaps that wasn't entirely true, as Bertram came to slowly realise there would always be a secret he might have to keep from Imran, the secret of his love, his undying infatuation. After all, Imran had always insisted that their nightly rendezvous were the result of boyish curiosity, nothing more. Bertram had agreed to his lover's logic, but secretly knew there was something far more serious rooted inside him. Something that wanted Imran all to himself, with Llewellyn's spirit warning of death spreading further into the Sainsbury Seal dormitories. Bertram knew he had to do everything in his power to protect Imran from following Llewellyn. He'd sooner die than lose the boy he loved so unreservedly. After several days passed, more and more faculty could be seen returning to their school in expensive-looking town cars from their dormitory window. Bertram and Imran reasoned that they could not as easily engage in horseplay until after dark as the door to their quarters was routinely ordered to be kept open during the day. 
Bertram couldn't help but wonder if some of the faculty suspected them of engaging in sexual immorality. If they somehow recognised his lingering glances at Imron, or the way his voice had softened whenever he spoke to him. There are certainly ways to tell when two boys had become more than intimate with one another. Little hints that went well beyond how girls and boys hold hands when they're young and in love. There was an ease, a level of comfortability with regard to one another that most boys never possessed. Even the school's headmaster had seemed to pale when he saw how both boys had looped their fingers with black threads as if they belonged to some secret order. In the way that Bertram had expected something horrible to make itself known to him before he had seen Llewellyn's ghost, he knew something equally dreadful was approaching when Imran undressed for bed that night. I guess we better have it out, he said, climbing into his own bed on the other side of the small room. Bertram looked at him queerly. For the past several nights they had slept together, and he couldn't help but wonder why, on the night before the end of winter recess, he would willingly choose to sleep alone. Yes? Bertram watched as Imran stirred beneath the sheets, propping himself up against two pillows. Things are going to be different tomorrow when the others return, Imran explained. Of course, Bertram had known that, but he could never reason with himself to accept it as reality. In fact, in his mind, he would forever remain in the interim between semesters, his little body swaddled by Imran and gently rocked to sleep the way a parent might care for their young. After all, to Bertram, Imran had become everything. He had replaced the parents he never knew. He had offered the love he thought he rightfully deserved. Although Bertram dreaded the answer, he couldn't help but ask the question. How will things be different? You don't know? Imran asked, glaring at him icily. There was a quiet, undisturbed part of Bertram that knew full well, but he wanted more than anything for Imran to say it. Our friends will be coming back, Imran said slowly, as if carefully considering each word. You and I, we're in different circles. My friends wouldn't know you or want to. His voice trailed off, unsure. Get to know me, Bertram finished for him. Imran's eyes lowered, as if rehearsing to say something far more hurtful. They've always thought you were different, he explained. Bertram winced, doubling over in agony, as if Imran's words had levelled him. Though it was something he knew full well, it hurt him to hear regardless. Whether it was because he enjoyed reading fine literature as opposed to roughhousing, or simply because of the feminine way he carried himself, Bertram had known from an early age that he was, and would always be, different, an outsider among boys. You don't want to be seen with me, Bertram said, his eyes avoiding Imran at all costs. I don't want them knowing what you've done to me, Imran said tightening the blanket around him as if it were suddenly a chastity belt. What I've done? What about what you've done? Imran sat up in bed, glaring at Bertram. Me? You've made me... Bertram's voice trailed off, the words far too painful to say. Yes? 
You made me love you. Imran's face winced. He stared for a moment as if unsure what to say. You love me? He asked. Bertram couldn't bear to look at him. After all, it was one thing to explore each other's bodies, unravel the mysteries knotted in their most private areas. But it was something entirely different. A crime against nature and God to fall in love. In his quivering little heart, Bertram knew that. Without hesitation, Imron snatched the blanket from his bed and hastened to the doorway dressed only in his pyjamas. Where are you going? Bertram asked. I can't sleep in here with you, Imran said, his hands tightening to fists as he tossed the blanket over his shoulder and threw open the door. Don't follow me. Don't ever come after me. Before Bertram could utter another word, Imran flew out of the room and sprinted down the hallway towards the attic door which was always left unlocked. Bertram figured his beloved would rather sleep on an undressed cot in the attic's crawlspace than spend another second in his wretched company. Bertram sat in the darkness for a moment. The room was so quiet and still that he could hear the blood pulsing through his head, a gentle current that seemed insistent to carry him far and away, anywhere but here. Perhaps somewhere Llewellyn was waiting. He regarded the black thread wrapped around his index finger, the little reminder of Llewellyn and the fragility of life when death seemed so persistent sometimes. It was then that Bertram realised he hadn't spooled the thread around his finger to keep death away. Instead, he had wrapped his finger and Imron's with the hope that they may never untether. He realised now he had buried so much longing and desire in the threads wrapped around their fingers and how no matter his efforts, it would never be enough to keep them together. Imron had already made that perfectly clear. Swallowing hard, Bertram unravelled the black thread until his finger was bare. Casting the thread aside, he tossed it with all the love, all the affection, all the unrequited passion he had possessed for Imron, a proper burial for what would be his first and only love. Then he lowered himself beneath the weight of a wool blanket and lay there quietly until sleep finally claimed him. The deep, peaceful sleep of death that eventually pulls all dreamers, all fantasies, all those who are marked to die further out toward an infinite sea of starless dark. We'll be back with our final dark tale after this short break. We wrap up our celebration as we explore the dangers of giving too much of yourself to a relationship and everything she's looking for by Caitlin Marso, told by Alicia Atkins. I think I want to break up with you. Oh my god, shut up! She laughs. I said I was sorry. No, I mean it! The other woman jokes. I think we need to break up. I was promised a night of... How did the Evite phrase it? Furiously feminist and devilishly divine fun? That Morgan was fucking lame. The leaves crunch underfoot as they walk through the dimly lit park. 
putting distance between themselves and the small university-owned townhouse a few streets over. The air is cool on their skin and promises rain. Wind rushes through the trees and rattles the branches, shaking out the last of the autumn-red foliage onto the ground ahead of them. The stars are bright overhead, or they would be if not for the glowing city lights drowning out their natural beauty. I didn't know you were into that Wicca shit, Ari says with a smile. I'm not. Or like, not like whatever the hell that was. Sure, whatever you say. Next thing I know, you'll be BFFs with Raven Blackfeather Seardwin and her troop of radical, truth-seeking Sisters of the Moon. Morgan laughs, nearly doubling over. Man, was she pretentious or what? I mean, what else were you expecting from a university Wiccan group? Can you say their title properly, please? They were very clear about how they identified their organization. Ari quips. Right, sorry. What did you expect from a university-funded interfaith coven for socially conscious babes made of starlight? The two of them laugh with abandon before Morgan thinks to make sure none of the other meeting members are within earshot. Thankfully, the two are alone in the park, as they head to the student housing district a few blocks over. With cheap rent, cheap amenities, like the park, and cheap bars within walking distance of nearly all the downtown campus buildings, Laughlin Street East is known primarily for housing most of the city's university students. With a variety of apartment buildings practically stacked on top of each other for a three-block radius, most of the students are, to some varying degree, both neighbors and classmates, which is no exception for Morgan and Ari, who had found themselves in the same research methods class and apartment complex. I don't know. I mean, I guess something more... more. Like, I guess I was expecting them to do small spells and rituals, maybe. And, like, get more involved with protests and social justice work. Not sit in the living room and act pretentious while drowning in a sea of Palo Santo. Yeah, that was a lot. So strong. Morgan agrees. The smell was the most powerful thing about that group. I'll take it you're not planning on joining them for next month's goddess circle? I'd sooner choke. Morgan retorts. The two of them walk in silence for a bit the noise of the downtown core filtering through the trees. The park, although small, is like a green shelter from the all-consuming sea of gray brick around them. The maples offer shade on hot days, and something sturdy to make out against at night. And even without most of their leaves, they dull the noise of drunk students and honking cars. Their building, the tallest one on the rapidly approaching block, is obscured from view thanks to a collection of lush pines in the distance. So, what made you want to go tonight? Spirituality? New friends? Ari asks in earnest. Oh, it... it doesn't matter. It's stupid. I doubt it. Come on, you can tell me. Morgan exhales and looks away from her, embarrassed, though not for the first time that evening. The magic. Ari laughs and Morgan crosses her arms in front of her chest defensively. I told you it was stupid. Oh, no, sorry. I, I wasn't laughing at you, I, I promise. And that's not stupid. I feel pretty stupid, Morgan admits. No, don't. Really, don't. You're not stupid, you're wonderful. She paws at Morgan's arms, 
uncrossing them and taking her hands in Ari's own, pulling her closer. I was laughing that you went to a bunch of Wiccans for a taste of magic when I'm right here. You are so lame when you're trying to be romantic. Morgan laughs, leaning in and kissing Ari on the lips. Thankfully, you're cute. First of all, I'm gorgeous. She teases. And secondly, I wasn't trying to be romantic. I was being serious. They continue through the park, out to the main street, and then cross at the intersection to their building. They open the main glass door, punch the door code onto the second one, and get in the small elevator together. The two of them get off on the sixth floor, and Ari walks Morgan to her door. Well, tonight was... interesting. Ari laughs, as Morgan unlocks her apartment. You could say that. Ari chuckles and leans in, planting a soft kiss on Morgan's cheek. Have I mentioned how beautiful you look tonight? You're fucking radiant. Morgan smiles and looks down. You're radiant. I'm... I, I just wish... What? Ari asks. I wish I could be more like you. Now why would you want to do a silly thing like that? Morgan ducks the question and asks one of her own instead. See you tomorrow in class? Definitely. Ari brushes a lock of Morgan's hair behind her ear, and when she pulls back her hand, she's holding a single peony between her fingers. She hands it to the other woman with a smile and heads back down the hall to the elevator. How'd you do that? Ari waves without looking back. She taps her nails along the side of the coffee cup, the trimmed ovals clicking against the thick cardboard impatiently as she waits. She picks up the peony again, running her fingers over the stem, across the leaves, and between each petal as she admires the flower. Hey! Ari calls from the doorway of the coffee shop, crossing through the crowded room. She leans down and kisses her before taking a seat across from Morgan at the small round table. Hey! I got this for you, she says, sliding one of the disposable cups across the marbled surface. It's not the pumpkin one, before you ask. Thank fuck, Ari says with a smile, gulping the hot caffeine. More for me. And I hope you enjoy every sip of it, she says, wrinkling her nose as her girlfriend takes a gulp. You like the flower I gave you enough to drag it around all day? I'm honestly just trying to figure out how you did it. With magic. Ha ha. Ari tilts her head to one side, raising an eyebrow. I'm not joking. It's witchcraft. Magic with a capital M? Spellcasting? Whatever you want to call it. That thing you were looking for with the coven last night? That's what I used to make you a flower. Come on, stop messing with me. Ari frowns and pulls the pink peony across the table towards her. She covers the petals with her hands and closes her eyes. After an uncomfortably long moment, she opens them, smiles at Morgan, and lifts her hands to reveal the now black petals. Morgan stares at her, eyebrow raised. Ari covers it once more and closes her eyes. This time, when she reveals the flower... It's a yellow rose. As if to outdo herself, she repeats the process a third and final time, leaving a violent and white lithiansis in her wake. Morgan stares at the flower for a long time before reaching out to touch it. 
She moves slow, like she's worried the plant might bite her, and picks it up delicately. She turns the flower between her fingers before staring at Ari. Wow. Just... Wow. Morgan breathes. That's... Wow. Wow? I I mean, what can I even say? Showering me with praise for my awe-inspiring power is always a good place to start. Ari jokes. I am in awe over your power, Morgan says quietly. The other woman frowns and folds her hands in her lap. Seriously, though, are you okay? Have I freaked you out with this? You seem... I don't know. Shell-shocked about this. About magic. Magic isn't real. I thought it's what you were looking for at the coven yesterday. Yeah, I, I mean, I was. Morgan stammers. But like, I don't know. I didn't really expect to find it. Not really. Didn't you, though? Ari pushes. Because you seemed pretty let down when you went home. I mean, I guess I was a little hopeful. So you were looking for magic, then. Hoping and actively looking are two different things. Morgan clarifies. Hoping is the lazy man's version of looking. It's searching for something greater than oneself and assuming you'll come up empty-handed, but that maybe you'll find something eventually. And besides, if you're hoping for magic, then it means at least a small part of you believes in the possibility of it. Morgan drinks from her latte as she digests everything. Eventually, she nods, conceding that there's some truth to Ari's words. She picks the lysianthus up again, looking at it from every side, feeling the petals, and running her hand over the stem. Why? Morgan eventually asks. Why what? Why are you showing me this? Why are you showing me magic? Does this make you a witch? Are you going to have to kill me or wipe my memory clean? What does this mean for me? Wow, okay. A bit of a floodgate, but I'm into it. Ari jokes. She reaches across the table and takes Morgan's hands in her own, holding them gently. Yes, I am a witch. And not to freak you out, but I think you might be one too. I could feel this energy, power, something in you when we first met. And it's not the reason I fell in... Well, fell for you. I actually thought you knew you had magic. But then you never brought it up, and there was the wicked date. And I realized pretty quickly you didn't know. You think I'm powerful? Morgan asks earnestly. Fuck yes. And I think you might have magic, so bonus. She teases. So, for your other big questions, I'm showing you magic because if you're a witch, then you should learn how to use the gifts you've been given. And know that you don't have to go looking for divinity in other people when you have it inside of you. And if you're not a witch, then I still really like you. Like, a lot. I think I might even... She exhales and gives Morgan a sad smile. Anyways, I guess I just wanted to share this with you because you're special. 
And now I kind of hope I haven't freaked you out too much and scared you away forever. Ari says nervously. No, definitely not. She rushes, squeezing Ari's hand back. I mean, yeah, it's a lot to take in, but you haven't scared me with anything. And I like you too. A lot. Really? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, if you're ever comfortable with it, I'd love to see more of what you can do. Well, come on then! Ari says excitedly, standing up from her chair and pulling Morgan to her feet. Where are we going? To make magic. You're so lame. Morgan chuckles, letting the other woman lead the way back to the apartment complex. Elysianthus left discarded on the table. The inside of Morgan's apartment is warm and comfortable. A pot of tea sits on the kitchen counter, Earl Grey steeping inside. On the small living room coffee table, a few candles have been arranged and lit, sage incense burning in a nearby dish. The two women stand with their backs to the mustard sofa, eyes glued to the painting hanging on the wall across from it. So, it's going to be hard to access your magic at first, Ari explains, her chin resting on Morgan's shoulder as she stands behind her. It'll get easier over time and with practice, I promise. But for now, it's going to feel like you're trying to reach through a brick wall. Sounds fun. And yet, decidingly not. Lucky for you, I'm going to lend you some of my magic. You can do that, Morgan asks. Only to other witches, and only if I let you into my heart. What do you mean? You'll see, Ari assures her. For now, just look at the painting on the wall, and imagine something else was painted on the canvas instead. Think in as much detail as you can. The more specific you can get, the better the results. Once you know what you want, close your eyes, and focus your intentions on the canvas. Uh, okay, Morgan says hesitantly. Don't worry, you're gonna suck. Everyone does the first time. That's encouraging. I'm nothing if not motivational, Ari coos into her ear. But this is just for practice. I'm more interested in if you can cast a spell than if it turns out good. Okay. You ready? Ari checks. Yeah. Okay. I'm letting you in. You should feel it in a second. And once you do, focus on the painting. It doesn't take long for Morgan to feel Ari's energy, and soon her body is flooded with warmth. No, with emotion. It's strong and overwhelming, and feels white-hot coursing through her veins and into her heart. It's love and acceptance and home. It makes her feel giddy and alive, and she doesn't want the feeling to end. Never again. She can hear Ari whispering in her ear about the painting, and it takes her a moment to focus on what she's supposed to be doing. Eventually, her mind quiets long enough for Morgan to picture a pink galaxy, swirling and effervescent, and she closes her eyes as she pictures every star and beam of light. When she opens her eyes, the color block painting has been replaced with the rose galaxy that had lived only in her mind a moment ago. Wow. Ari breathes behind her, tickling her neck and sending goosebumps running down her spine. 
That's... That's fucking incredible. The woman moves from behind Morgan and crosses the small space between her and the painting. The galaxy is so exact, it could be a photograph. The stars look as though they're expanding into the depths of the ether. The pink gas is swirling across the canvas and seemingly off its corners. I'm serious, Morgan. This is amazing by practice witch standards. Never mind someone's first time. I don't even think I could do that. Hey, without you it wouldn't have been possible in the first place. It's because of you that I was able to realize something this beautiful. Something like you. Ari smiles at her and closes the distance between them, taking Morgan's face in her hands and drawing her close. As they kiss, Morgan runs her hands through Ari's long hair and to the nape of her neck. She pulls back from the other woman, breathing heavily. Did you mean what you said? Back at the coffee place? Morgan asks. About? The way you feel about me. Do you really, you know, love you? Yeah. Yeah. I love you. Ari confesses. Morgan's smile is as radiant as the galaxy on the wall. She kisses Ari deeply and pulls away from her lips before planting another soft peck on her. I thought I could feel that from you, but I, I wanted to be sure. Can I try one more spell? Sure, of course. Ari puts her hands on Morgan's shoulders and opens her heart back up to the woman. Morgan's mouth falls open from the high of it as she drinks in the power. You need to do something, Ari reminds her, nodding to the photo. I already am, Morgan says regretfully. Ari raises an eyebrow and watches the canvas, waiting for the photo to change. It doesn't, but something inside her does. At first, it feels like a small pressure building within her, but soon she's doubled over clutching at her chest as a searing pain runs through her bones. Stop, Morgan, stop! Whatever you're trying to do, st stop! I, I don't think it's working. It is. Don't worry. No, please, y you need to- Calm down, Ari. It's almost over. I'm so sorry, baby. What is- Why are you sorry? Did you know witches don't have an infinite supply of this shit? Morgan asked her trying to lead her first to the couch, and then helping Ari onto the ground as her knees give way. I didn't. Apparently, it's why witches had covens in the first place, so they could borrow and replenish each other's magic. But for solo practitioners? We just... I don't know. Stop. The magic goes away. The well runs dry. And we just stop having power. What are you talking about? Ari asks, blinking slowly. Morgan helps Ari lie down on her side before walking over to the couch, grabbing a pillow and bringing it back to the woman. She lifts Ari's head and slides the pillow underneath it, before brushing hair off the woman's forehead with a delicate hand. I'm really sorry you had to fall in love with me to make this work. But you said it yourself. You needed to let me into your heart to use your magic and an open heart, a vulnerable heart, makes tapping into power, draining that power, a lot easier. 
You are an amazing woman, though. And you know, in another life, I think we could have worked out. Ari opens her mouth trying to say something, but another wave of pain rolls through her, and she seizes up from the agony of it. I hope, in another universe, that we did work out. That we're happy and growing old together, Morgan says. What are you talking about? She slurs, vision blurring at the edges. There's a pit in her stomach that's getting bigger with every passing second, but she's too weak to move. Her breathing is slowing down, her limbs heavy. I hope you know how beautiful you really are, and how much your strength has inspired me. I hope you know that I wish, I wish, this could be any other way. Morgan whispers to her, unaware that all Ari can hear is the blood slowing in her veins. I'm so sorry, Ari. I hope you know, despite all of this, I love you too. She looks down at Ari's still body with a sad smile, holding her until her body begins to feel cold to the touch. Eventually, Morgan leans over and kisses her on the forehead before closing her eyes and focusing her intentions. When she opens them, Ari's body is gone from the living room floor. Morgan gets up and passes the canvas, chest tight as she looks at the kaleidoscope galaxy. Ari stares back, portrait arranged in the painted stars. Thank you for joining us for today's 2021 Pride Celebration episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library's showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. The Wicked Library's lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett R. Algy. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, The Wicked Library's creative director and executive producer. The Wicked Library's resident composer and an executive producer is Nico Vetese of We Talk of Dreams. Today's episode was hosted by me, Davis Walden. To find out more about today's authors, artists, composer, and voice actors, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and look at their bio pages. Support of the show is provided through Patreon by Patreon supporters at patreon.com wickedlibrary. A sincere thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. On behalf of everyone involved in making the show, a sincere thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can be a part of helping the show you love keep coming. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios, all rights reserved.